This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, good morning. You are listening to The Morning Run. It's six in the morning on Friday, the 10th of June, or Fri-yay, as I always call it. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. I'm with Philip C. and Wong Xiaoning on this lovely, dark Friday morning. It has to be dark. There's no sun. <laughs> yes. It's 6 o'clock in the morning, it, Shaz. It's pre-dawn. <laughs> pre-dawn. Sun will rise at about 7.02, according to my phone. And we will watch that glorious <laughs> sunrise over Tamantun, Dr. Ismail, from the windows of our studio. Uh, we have a pretty exciting... Uh, we have lots of exciting conversations lined up this morning. Uh, beginning at 7.15, we'll check the pulse of Malaysian SMEs and find out whether the full reopening of the economy in April has brought them back to life. We'll have Dr. William Ng of Samenta, one of the SME associations. He'll be joining us for this chat. And at 7.30, we get a preview of the Shangri-La Security Dialogue that takes place this weekend in Singapore with Chong Jia Ian, the Associate Professor at the National University of Singapore. A very much anticipated dialogue because it involves the clash of the two defence chiefs from the United States and China and whether who will hold sway the most in this part of the region. This, uh, this meeting has been postponed for two years. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's a long time coming. I think people are also excited to come back and actually get to see each other in person as opposed to just you know, across the screen. Um, um, do you know why it's called the Shangri-La Dialogue? Because it's, it's held in Shangri-La. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was like, I was expecting something, you know, like interesting about it. I like, was like magical oh, or mythical no, or, it's, or epic. No, no, it's just because it's held at that <laughs> hotel in, in Singapore. Uh, meanwhile, at 7.45, we're going to be discussing tax reforms and what the proposed Fiscal Responsibility Act is all about with te- tax expert Dr. Varindajit Singh. And I'm very interested in term, in, of course, about this. This is one of my pet topics. So do tune in, I think. All right, we'll have all this and more today on The Morning Run. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. That was The Killers with Human. And before that, you heard Flying by The Beatles. I'm Shazana Mokdar with Philip C. and Wong Xiaoning. 6.08 in the morning on Friday, the 10th of June. Between the choice of human and dancer, I choose dancer every time. Unless you, if you're, unless you're a bad dancer, I would still choose dancer. What? Well, then dance in your room. Then, <laughs> as you all know, I'm a yeah. terrible dancer, but it's okay. We've seen, we've seen it. We've You've seen, seen it. it in action, right? Yes. Dancers you're, you're right. for the win. But in any case, I have another question of uh, which or what, <laughs> this or that. If the world were a glass of water, do you see it as half full or half empty? Of course, half full because I drink it all. Okay. (laughs) Well, the reason I ask this is because if you want to live longer, research suggests that you might want to view it as half full. So there's a new study of nearly 160,000 women of different races and backgrounds. It indicates that higher levels of optimism are associated with the longer lifespan and a greater chance of living past 90. So where do you fall? Are you with the optimistic camp or the pessimistic camp? I'm very keen to get negative Nancy's perspective here. <laughs> That's are right. you looking at me, Philip C? Our resident, you always call yourself negative Nancy. Our resident no, I'm Debbie, Debbie Downer, Downer. not negative it. Nancy. Hello. <laughs> I'm like, who's Nancy? Uh, am I that bad? Am I no, mis-pessimistic? You're not, no, you're not, you're not. But I think you always, uh, you always kind of moderate the discussion, right? As as we all tend to talk. But you always talk about yourself, tell yourself that you're a Debbie Downer, isn't it? You always tell I'm yourself that. I'm a little bit that. because I think for me, what is important is to manage my own expectations. Yeah. So then I'm always hoping to be pleasantly surprised rather than dismally dispo- disappointed. So that's my approach in life. 
Not I, so much that I want to be pessimistic, but I actually, my outcome is I want to be happy at the end. Okay, so that's a distinction between plan for the best, expect the worst, essentially, yeah. right? That's what you do. And I think that's a healthy approach where the goal here about being optimistic is you have to plan and move forward and hope for much better things, but not allow the outcomes to drag you down if they fall beyond your expectations. Yeah. And also, so as you go about planning, you then are able to be realistic and try and input as much as possible to avoid a disappointment. That's what mm. that's what my life ethos is all about. And mm. I think that has helped me. Maybe because of my past career when it comes to fund management, so little is in your control, right? So you try to put in as many negative assumptions as possible. Uh, but We call it risk management. Yeah, it's called risk management. Uh, that's just my nature. Yeah. But as a as a person, am I a pessimist? No, no I don't think so. No, I, I don't not. I don't want to be because I think then the outlook of life will be a very, very grey. Although I would say that's one of my favorite colours. <laughs> well, this is coming back to the study, right, where it says that actually in twenty nineteen the, the average lifespan expands by about eleven to fifteen percent longer if you practice uh, a bit of positive thinking. And the other study that came up from this is that actually you can program yourself because they only said that optimism is programmed in about 25% of genes. So it's something you can cultivate. Oh, so one quarter of the people around the world are, neg- are natural pessimists. Is that, uh, is no, that the point? The op- no, no, not exactly. Okay. <laughs> He's just saying that genetically, uh, po- optimism is uh, 25% of that could come from genes. Oh, yes. okay. So... So the thing is, I guess it's important also to understand why they say optimism is the better way to go, I suppose, or why they, it's more it's more preferable. The idea is that optimistic people are less likely to blame themselves and more likely to see the obstacle as temporary or even positive. So mm. it really is that different perspective that optimists have about something. It's not about ignoring stressors, yeah? So we're not talking mm, Pollyanna. Yeah. We're not saying that, oh, everything is happy, happy, joy, joy. But it's more like when things aren't happy, happy, joy, joy, they're, they recognize it as temporary or they recognize it as as something growing as opposed to something that brings you down and you can't change. Well, that's linked to resilience, I think. I mean, you have to move forward. Mm. You know that there are going to be challenges in life, but this is part of it, right? I think the recognition of the challenges in life actually enhances your resilience and optimism. If you if you go in and take a Pollyannish view, then when you see a hurdle, it will all fall apart very fast. Yeah, yeah, because you're panicked, right? It didn't even occur to you that this, you know, that this negative thing could happen. Exactly. Or if you ignore it, if yeah. you just ignore the, re- the realities or the challenges, then that's also not a great thing. That doesn't help you either. But the point is, I, I suppose, getting that balance to be able to overcome obstacles, that's mm-hmm. where having an optimistic mindset uh, could be an asset. But this is where I, I get this uh, a lot from my older generation, like from my grandparents and my mother. They always say ignorance is bliss. For them in that generation where, you know, they have not been involved with the world, they haven't seen much, right? Oh my God, we're going to get so many complaints. We will, we will. But, they, but it's true though. Many of them actually say in, in the 90s, 95s, they're quite oblivious to what's happening and they seem relatively contented. Maybe that sometimes so is... it's also a big consideration as well. Maybe that's not always a bad thing. You know, sometimes you choose to ignore things for a reason uh, and then so that you can just get on with the task ahead, right? Otherwise, like, let's say, okay, let's put things into today's context. So we're kind of slack, we're emerging out of a COVID-19 pandemic. Now, during the height of the pandemic, I think, you know, the peak depression for me was probably like June, July 2020 and then again in January, February 2021 when death rates were really high. Now, what is the attitude we should have that we will get out of this, you know, positively? 
I think at that time it was really, really challenging. Uh, it was. And I think there was no clear vision or view at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. So what's the point? The point is basically, you know, sometimes you have to have that little bit of optimism, but the reality check that it's going to be a tough track. For me, keeping my head somewhere under in the sand like an ostrich isn't going to help either. Well, tell us what you think. Are you an optimist or a pessimist? Or maybe you'd want to call yourself a realist. You know, tell us, how do you handle challenges? What's your approach? WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. We're heading into some messages. We're going to come back in just a bit with a discussion on Sheryl Sandberg's legacy at Facebook. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Parliament, that was Parliament with Flashlight, a song released in January of 1978. You're listening to The Morning Run, 6.20am on Friday, the 10th of June. I did not ask who's born. Who was born there? <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm the only one in the room. <laughs> Deadly silence. Probably it's true. <laughs> I was a twinkle in my parents' eye at that time. Uh, but in any case, we are turning our attention to another story that has, um, I think all of us in this room listen to The Journal, which is a podcast by The Wall Street Journal. It's a morning run favorite. And one of the episodes covered Sheryl Sandberg's complicated career at Facebook. Because as we all know, last week, news broke that Sheryl Sandberg will leave Facebook after, what, 14 years in the post? She's been there. She's been instrumental. She's yeah. been instrumental to how Facebook has grown and expanded over the past decade plus. And um, yeah, it's the time for everyone to reflect on what her legacy there is. I mean, honestly, 14 years, you know, transforming Facebook from that so small social media outpost to really this mega advertising giant really is a testament to Sheryl Sandberg's uh, vision and ability to execute, right? And actually work with a founder uh, really is testament to her ability to also be very resilient. Huh? So I, I think whatever whatever said and done, I think in the past two, three years where I think she's been under a lot of scrutiny, uh, she has been very consequential. She has been very impactful to not only Facebook, but I think for many people around the world. Yeah, thanks to her, we get lots of pop-up ads and lots of advertisements targeted. Mm. I will repeat, targeted advertisements yeah. uh, based on our interests and what we uh, scroll online, what, what we, she even, thanks to AI and all that data, they know exactly what our preferences are, what we're looking for, whether it's a new car, new handbag, new shoes, new clothes, anything, right? So what do you think she should be remembered for? I, I mean, there are two broader dimensions, I think right? two yeah. things. One mm. of which is that she turned Facebook around from not from being a company that wasn't profitable to being extremely profitable, okay? Like you say, focusing on advertising and targeted advertising. The second thing is to her to her credit, she built her own brand, right? Where she came across as this female leader and she wrote two best-selling novels. Uh, I think the first one was called Lean In, Lean In. right? Uh, where she tells women, you know, go out there, demand for that better salary, go and get that better job. Um, so I think those are her two legacies. But for me, what is, is interesting is the way she has decided to depart and will society, will the business world, will we remember her more for that than the other two actually more enduring legacies? 
I think that, you know, the, the sad part, I think, with her is that we, when you listen to the podcast, you see her waning influence yes. as, as things move, especially after the election of President Donald Trump, where it came to fall, really, how all these external parties tried to infiltrate Facebook and why she, she wasn't really in part of the picture. And you could actually see that uh, Mark Zuckerberg slowly alienate her in the process. So I think it's quite sad that that's, what's, that's what happened uh, in the last three to four years as her influence waned. Facebook. Yeah, because even this podcast kind of gives a sense that that's what we're going to remember her for more than the mm. you know the, her the beginnings of her career. But I think the other thing is you know if, if when I listen to it, I ask myself also as an employee, at what point do I then decide that I should actually take stock of my position in the company mm. and yep. exit at a high rather than exit at a kind of a low or medium low. I fully agree. I think 14 years is a very long time in the role, yes. for sure. And and I agree with you also, when you leave, you always try and leave on a high. Mm. So it's a bit sad that she's left under in a cloud because there was even these talks and rumours that, oh, it was over the fact that she used the company's account to set up her wedding and such, right? Which is not yet substantiated, but it's sad that all these things ended her career in Facebook. Yeah, so... The other thing that I found this podcast really interesting and, you know, kudos to them is they they actually quantify her influence within the company by how, what was the percentage of, com- of employees and divisions that actually reported to her at the peak of her career and of today, right? So at the peak of her career, it was like she was involved with more than 50%. And as of today, it's like less than 30%. But the big thing I think that was a sign of a downfall was that she wasn't involved at all when Facebook... Tr- uh, transition to meta. to meta and that of course is a big thing within Facebook so I think for, for us employees it's important to recognise the writing of on the wall if we are still relevant that management still wants to listen to us and not wait too, too, too late actually to depart well two things I'll be looking out for where is Sheryl Sandberg going next and who's going to be taking her place over at Facebook or meta you know like who's going to be the next person yeah. to have the control that she did or maybe there will never be someone like that I, I, I got a feeling they probably will not be able to replace her. Tell us what you think about Cheryl Sandberg and also Meta's future. 6.25 in the morning, we're heading into the 6.30am news bulletin and then after that we'll be back with Global Headlines, BFM 89.9. That was the dulcet tones of Feist with One Evening. It's still the morning though, Friday morning, 6.40am, 10th of June. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Philip C and Wong Xiaoning. Now earlier in the morning, we were discussing the difference between optimists and pessimists and whether you saw the world as half uh, as a glass half full or half empty. We do have a WhatsApp message coming in uh, from one of our listeners. Yeah, he has basically said, don't see glass ha- excuse me, don't see glass as half empty or half full, just grateful to have water to drink. That's and true. That came in from Ro. Thanks, Ro, for chiming in on that. Uh, very wise words indeed there. Now, it's that time of morning where we take a look at what's making headlines around the world. Tell me what's caught your eye this morning, Phil. Yeah, so H, I think uh, for me pulled out a report from Deloitte where merchants getting ready for crypto. So this is a report which says that nearly three quarters of US retailers are planning to accept crypto or stablecoin payments within the next 24 months. So the survey polled 2,000 senior executives of American retail organizations and really they anticipate close to 85% of the merchants saying that they have to get ready for cryptocurrency payments. Wow, I, I'm going to find this a bit of a challenge, you know, because how do you mark to market cryptocurrencies? You can, I mean, it, there is a rate on the exchange, but the volatility in itself, when you keep it in your accounts, yeah. 
it's going to be hard to manage. And I think Tesla is probably feeling the effects of that when we look at um, their cryptocurrencies because they allow uh, people to pay for their cars with crypto, right? Yeah, and even with that concern on volatility, over half of these large retailers have invested more than US mm. 1 million to enable digital currency payments. Yeah, already. apparently the latest job on the street is chief cryptocurrency officer. So that's something that maybe you want to apply for in the future. Uh, meanwhile, I'm looking at a story out of Bloomberg. And you know, you all like to make fun of the fact that I have a, a word of the year, right? I think last year's word, well, words of the year was uh, ultra low rates. And guess what? It really has come to an end. Because the ECB has uh, brought down a curtain on years of ultra-loose monetary policy. They're committing to a quarter-point increase in interest rates next month and signalling even bigger heights in the fall. And this is despite the fact that actually uh, the European economy is not in top form on the back of the Ukraine war. I think this caused a lot of debate, especially not only on the quarter point, but that the ECB allowed room for a 50 basis point hike following that. So the question really, Shaoning and Shas, is, have the hawks dominated the ECB? Because that has always been the debate of the dovish stance of Christine Lagarde. Well, I think the point is that a lot of people are also thinking that the ECB has been slow to act. Yeah, I mean, inflation has hit 8%. Their mandate is to keep it down to 2%. So that's, that's a huge, you know, that's like how four times higher than what, when, than what the, their target is. So I can see why they need to act. It's Even in the US, right, the targeted rate is 2%. And look at it, it's like, what, 8 9% in the CP uh, consumer price index numbers coming out later today. I think there's expectations. I think the street is ex- yes. expecting 8 plus. 8 plus. Let's see what the figure comes out. But they're even debating whether the normal is no longer 2% but 4%. Oh, uh, by the way, right, Bloomberg has come up with some interesting data. Do you know that more than 60 central banks have hiked interest rates this year? So we are really, really in a very hawkish tone. So that's why I think the ECB has no choice, right? Because yeah. everybody reacts to somebody in on the you know in terms of central bank movements and they are really behind the curve. So the story that uh, I'd like to draw your attention to is uh, to the very interesting world of golf. Now, I'm not a golf fan by any po- any any by any measure. I don't only, only, this- go- only Philip has this golf aura, like a little bit of a golf aura. Why do aura. I have a golf aura? <laughs> well, well, more than my two dad, of- <laughs> yeah. In any case, I'm not so much interested in what's taking place on the green fields, but what's happening off the field. And who knew that golf could be so, uh, so politically, uh, so so much. There's so much political turmoil in golf because there's a new tournament that's coming into the scene. It's known as the LIV Golf Event that's being backed by Saudi money. And it has caused the ire of the US PGA Tour, which I suppose is the preeminent golf competition for all these professional golfers, yeah? So they have actually um, suspended 17 golfers yes. who are taking part in this other tour, including and- six-time major winner Phil Mickelson and former number one Dustin Johnson. So there are, it's it's like football all over again. or Yeah, it's like, it's like football where you had these competing leagues coming Super in. Super League, right? It was supposed to be the Super League. But it's- now it's in golf. I mean, this is the big debate, as you say, Right, the names are really big hitters, right? Phil Mickelson, Brian DeChambeau, Ian Ian Poulter. These big names are moving over to this Saudi breakaway uh, tournament. I think the whole debate is: is it all about money? And I guess the question is: the answer is yes, right? I mean, whoever thought that a game where men wear some really really ugly t-shirts or shirts? Oh, is that how you associate me wearing ugly <laughs> yeah, t-shirts? Thank you, thank you. But for I know that. there's a lot of money involved. <laughs> there is a ton of money involved. So this LIV golf event, the prize pot is twenty five million dollars it's the biggest in the sport so i Enough can see to how stock that up ugly t-shirts 
t-shirts for the rest of your life. <laughs> exactly. Collared t-shirts, by the Collard way. Collared t-shirts. We're coming up to 6.46 in the morning. We're heading into some messages. And when we come back, we'll take a look at what's making headlines in our local newspapers and portals. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. The Rolling Stones with Living in the Heart of Love. You're listening to The Morning Run, 6.50 in the morning on Friday, the 10th of June. I'm Shazana with Shaoning and Philip. Now we are taking a look at what's making headlines in our local newspapers and portals. What's caught your eye this morning? Well, I think if you're free over the weekend, you perhaps can go for the Born Odori Festival because our Sultan Sharafuddin Idris Shah has instructed the state Islamic authorities not to obstruct next month's Japanese Born Odori Festival. Sorry, not this weekend. Sorry, apologies. <laughs> it's next month, yes. Next month. It has been going on in our country for, what, 30 years? And I think many see it as a cultural exchange. A lot of um, Japanese companies get involved. Apparently, it's just quite a, a lot of fun. So, you know, it's good that it's, progress- it's moving along. Um, the other news I have, actually, is uh, Straits Times front page, which is actually not news because I think we all know it. And that is we have just too many cars. Guess what? Officially, we have now more cars than people in this country. Why? Hmm. Because last year, there were sorry, 33.3 million vehicles as opposed to a human population of 32.7 million. And I'm sure five-year-olds aren't driving. <laughs> well, I, this isn't, this, I'm not surprised. It's because just last week, we were having a conversation about more highways. That actually the federal government was planning to introduce three additional highways around the Klang Valley. Despite the fact that actually there's also been investments made uh, in MRT3 and such. So really, I think the question here is, you know, how are we going to shift people to public transport while we hear this headline about more cars in Malaysia. You know, Germany um, over the recently to encourage the usage of public transport has now come up with a nine euro monthly pass for its rail system. I'm not sure it's across the whole country, but definitely one district has decided, has done it. And as a result, so many people have moved on to using the train as opposed to taking the cars on the road. But for me, this solution is not just, you can't just say, okay, we'll let, let's have some policies to, talk, to restrict the number of cars. It has to be, let's make public transport affordable, super accessible, okay? And then look at the restricting restricting the use of cars on the road, be it whether to increase parking charges, maybe even removing the RON 95 oil subsidies because petrol is so cheap. You still think, hey, I can still drive, right? What's the issue here? So I'm... I think back to the conversation that we had with transport policy consultant uh, Rosli Azad last week, I think, and he really said planning, 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 mm. planning needs Cohesive to be done. planning. Because mm. there's so many different moving parts and when you make these piecemeal decisions, of course, it's going to upset the balance of all the other things as well. Um, so yes, where is the planning? I think policymakers really need to address that. And I think with respect to planning, I think o- overnight, uh, our Bursa Malaysia Chairman Tan Sri Abdul Wahid Omar said that actually Malaysia needs to actually have an investment of 350 to 450 billion ringgit over the 2030 to 2050 period if it wants to achieve its commitment to be a net zero greenhouse gas emission nation by as early as 2050. So this was based on a report and study done by the WWF and BCG, but he did note that 60% of that amount was actually viable and should be driven by the private sector. But that said, another 25% would require proper carbon pricing with further emission reductions commercialised with carbon pricing around 200 ringgit per tonne. Wow. Okay, that will increase the cost of doing business, right? But then the, the argument about carbon pricing is actually 
how you know it has to actually consider the future damage that it cause from the use mm. of uh, fossil fuels. And I'm just curious, what is the figure that Malaysia is going to come up with at the end of the day? Yeah, I think there was also a report that you know, in, as you know, Singapore and Indonesia were planning to introduce are introducing a carbon yeah, tax. Yeah, and they've come up with a figure, right? Like yes. I, I can't remember at the top of my head. Yeah, so I think the question is whether Malaysia will do something like that. There was a report that says we are not yet ready, but we are on the pathway towards it. It's but, something that's being considered, right? I think yes. the ministry has said that they're looking at this carbon market, but how is it going to look like in the Malaysian context? It's, we still ha- don't really have details about this, but um, it's good that these ideas are coming out and I hope discussions are happening in a more rigorous and robust way so that we can see this materialize sooner rather than later because it's not something that can wait. I wonder if this is going to be part of the Fiscal Responsibility Act that the Ministry of Finance is contemplating with doing? Um, it'll be, I'm curious. I don't think so, a, a but we'll of, find Yeah, I think there's, again, with that FRA also, lots of ans- questions uh, mm. rather than answers. Okay. But we'll be discussing this a little bit later on the show with tax expert Dr. Virinderjit Singh. Okay, and very quickly, I want to congratulate two Malaysian schools who have, short, who have been shortlisted in the top 10 for World's Best School Prizes, which is SK... Kampangdang and MK Kampong Jawa in the running for innovation and overcoming adversity. And I hope they do win a share of this 250000 US dollars prize for world's best school. That's such a feather in our cap. The fact that uh, Malaysian schools are among the top 10 finalists of this award, this inaugural world's best school prizes, um, I think that uh, points to something that's going right when it comes to charter schools um, that, that are being done by Yayasan Hasana um, and, and Leap Ed, I believe, is also part of it. So how, how Malaysia is dealing with trust schools, the kind of administration, it seems to be uh, paying off dividends. Yeah, so two awards, right? One, world's best school for innovation. Kudos to them. The second one, World Best School for Overcoming Adversity. I really hope actually Malaysian schools don't need to win an award for overcoming adversity in which we as civil society and actually communities really help them overcome adversity by themselves, right? So I think we need to make sure that the social infrastructure is available so that they don't win, need to be candidates for these awards in the future. 6.56 in the morning. We're heading into the 7 a.m. news bulletin. And then after that, we'll take a look at what's uh, how global markets have closed. Taking you to the news, Friday, I'm in love by The Cure. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.